Welcome to Congress Two Beers In. I'm here with my colleague, Matt Glassman, and we hey. have a special guest today, uh, Josh Chaffetz, professor of law at Georgetown University, is here joining us. Um, if you have been in a GAI class um, before, you've absolutely probably read his book, uh, Congress's Constitution. Um, he's done a Matt, lot of really- holding it. Oh, Glassman's got it all. Yeah, I'm, I'm holding books. it. This is, this, is, uh, this is an incredible book, highly recommended, Congress's Constitution. I uh, actually came to know Josh in a really weird way, which is what essentially I think became a chapter of this book was a law review article. And I was sitting in the uh, speaker's office in the House of Representatives and someone brought it up. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yes, I have, uh, I have heard of that article and seen the argument, but I didn't know they'd be talking to the speaker's office. So Congress's Constitution actually influencing Congress uh, and maybe the Constitution too. Keep going, Josh. Yeah, so we wanted to uh, bring in uh, uh, Josh to talk about uh, Congress as an institution, kind of where it sits and the separation of powers, a whole bunch of stuff. Like he's just a very, 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 very smart scholar uh, on Congress. And so um, I guess we're, we're kind of entering a weird period for Congress. Um, you know, your book is really about like Congress's primacy within the constitutional system and the kind of powers and authorities that it has. Um, and we're seeing an institution that's like, kind of shying away from those a little bit or at least it's getting like a lot of challenges from the executive branch and the courts uh so just like real basic right off the start like where where do you see congress right now as an institution in terms of like its power its prestige and and, and otherwise well in terms of its prestige it's certainly uh not riding high although there's you know almost no point at, uh, in its uh, recent history at which congress has been sort of riding high in, in public esteem and, and that definitely has implications for its power uh, that said, we're also at a moment where the other institutions, where where the presidency and the um, and the courts, to a large extent, are not exactly uh, wildly popular with the public at large. So, um, you know, there there's a an opening. I, I think potentially an opening for Congress, uh, at least in the next Congress, to to um, sort of do some interesting things. You know, a lot. Everything, of course, depends on what happens in November. But um, you know, there, there's a. I see a possibility that we could sort of look back uh, on. Uh, the Trump administration as being sufficiently akin to the Nixon administration that in the way that you get a sort of uh, post-Watergate Congress riding high, um, uh, it's possible that you sort of see something similar with a, a post-Trump Congress. Um, a lot's going to depend not just on sort of what happens with the election, but what, you know, what narrative we tell ourselves about what happened in the election. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are definitely uh, constituencies, you know, in, in Congress right now that are interested in being assertive in various ways and uh, uh, players in the House who have tried to be assertive in various ways. Um, they've, you know, they gave it the old college try. Well, you know, and, and in some cases they've, uh, they've sort of kept the heat on, you know, who knows what uh, the sort of uh, aftermath of impeachment would have been but for COVID. Right. It's, it's sort of hard to know, uh, you know, how that would have affected the, I think we can now say, you know, people aren't even going to remember, people probably don't even remember it now. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we saw a pretty active, aggressive House of Representatives. Um, we've seen that, we've seen them playing hardball with, um, uh, with the, the CARES Act and with um, sort of subsequent um, legislation around COVID. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't see a sort of supine house. I see, I see a Congress that's, you know, divided um, uh, uh, between the parties. And so there's, there's sort of a limited amount of legislative output we should expect to see. But I see a, certainly a house that's engaged in pretty active oversight. I see a Senate Intelligence Committee that's engaged in pretty active oversight. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that Congress has been um, sort of inactive or has, has rolled over for the Trump administration. Now, when you, Josh, when you see sort of a, 
second coming of the post-Watergate era, which I think most people agree had some pretty significant teeth, both in the last year of Nixon's term in office and the aftermath of it, of Congress sort of unifying against the president. That's sort of one strand, sort of taking on immediate issues from the Trump era. But there's also this greater issue of sort of the enhancement of the executive branch post 9-11 that has never seen sort of a sort of reaction in Congress to enhance Congress's capacity. After the sort of New Deal, we had the Reorganization Act in the 40s. And after the big expansion of federal power in the, in, or at least federal uh, scope of power in the 60s, we had sort of the 70 Reorganization Act. But post 9-11, we haven't seen that either. And that sort of strikes me as somewhat different than just reacting to sort of a Nixonian style uh, Trump aggrandizement where we might reform, say, how the FBI is headed or something like that. Uh, or little things at the Justice Department relative to, to beefing up Congress. Do you see the prospect of a full sort of legislative branch wide sort of enhancement on the offing? Or do you see this as more sort of a narrow thing that would respond to specific concerns from the Trump administration? Well, I, you know, I don't want to compare, um, you know, like the House Modernization Committee uh, to say the, the um, uh, you know, the 46 Act or something, but- um, no, I, you know, I've got ideas about the Modernization Committee. So <laughs> we should probably not go down that way. But, you know, but it's not nothing, right? It's, um, um, and there's interest, uh, and not just in the, among the Democrats, right? So there seems to be some bipartisan interest in, um, uh, in, in beefing up, con you know, Congress's capacity in various ways. Um, I think you could uh, sort of see that taken to another level. Again, assume, you know, if we're, if we're talking about a scenario where Democrats also take the Senate and the presidency, I think you could sort of see uh, a greater push towards be beefing up congressional staff, beefing up the nonpartisan uh, congressional agencies, trying to, um, you know, even hear Republicans talking about basically, uh, you know, the, the, the name of OTA is, is uh, anathema, but basically talking about creating a new OTA. Um, so I think there's, there's room for, for sort of congressional capacity building in that sense. I think there's also room for some sort of like smaller legislative fixes um, things that sort of seem fairly technical, but that might sort of be responsive in interesting ways to some of the things that have happened in the, uh, in the um, Trump administration. I think um, uh, reform to the Vacancies Reform Act. I think um, uh, tenure protections for inspectors general. Um, I think, you know, um, it's, uh, I think reform to the Emergencies Act. Um, uh, possibly even sort of uh, thinking about um, I mean, this is something I've been pushing, but trying to sort of think in terms of uh, reforming the Empowerment Control Act and maybe even modeling it sort of on the Anti-Deficiency -de -anti Act, adding sort of criminal penalties to the, to the Empowerment Control Act. You know, these are all sort of modern, moderate piecemeal things, but they're things that could add up, uh, uh, you know, post-Watergate reforms wasn't one big legislative piece. It was lots of little things that dribbled out over the course of six or seven years. So. Yeah, and so all of those things was sort of like restructured to kind of like give a, 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 a kind of layman's terms of what you just said, basically strengthening the power of the purse that Congress has, strengthening oversight capacity, um, strengthening its own capacity to sort of like oversee those things. Um, one of the things that I, I'm interested in, in getting your take on is, you know, after Watergate, you had this kind of, you know, government push for, for better or worse. That was like very pro-reform, kind of like it was lodged largely on like the liberal side of things, but it was like extremely bipartisan as well, right? You had a lot of Republicans working with Democrats. Um, what kind of political dynamics would need to be in place for that type of movement where you're starting to see like stronger congressional oversight of the executive, stronger limitations on uh, the ability to move funds, stronger um, 
uh, I's, G's and, and whatnot. Um, what kind of dynamics would be necessary to, put, to implement those things in the current era where we see like massive partisanship, very little cooperation? Maybe this is an area where we see these types of things, but what would need to happen politically for you to see those come to fruition? Well, I mean, so one of the interesting, um, you know, as you say, in the, in the aftermath of Watergate, it, it, um, a lot of these reforms are bipartisan. And part of the reason there is um, that you have sort of Republicans feeling the need to distance themselves from uh, Nixon, um, uh, combined with Democrats who sort of see this as a, as a, um, uh, as a you know, as a sort of, you know, hey, we ran on, we're not Nixon, so we, so we need to do these good government reforms. I think you could see something sort of potentially similar happening here, whether it's, um, uh, you know, let's assume that, that, that Biden wins the presidency, you could see Republicans um, signing on both because they want to sort of put some daylight between themselves and the Trump administration, and also because they want to, um, uh, you know, hey, now the president that we're reigning in is a Democrat. So it's, yeah. it's sort of easier to, to justify this on partisan terms as well. At the same time, you could see Democrats sort of being invested in it because it's a way of sort of further repudiating Trumpism and showing that sort of hey, we're the party that can be trusted, right? So my, my concern in all of this is, I think that's absolutely right, that the opposition party won't have a problem signing on to any of these style reforms if you can get the majority party to, you know, in some sense, fall on their sword and accept short-term, less than optimal results, however you want to think about that, in some sense. The question is whether someone like Biden is going to do this, because um, you're not going to get Joe Biden coming to office and saying, well, you know what, we should just repeal the National Emergency off Act and flip it around so there's sunsets on it. Um, hey, I, if he did it, I would love that. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. And so one question here is, are you going to have to fight the administration tooth and nail to do this stuff? Or are you going to get at least some buy-in from Biden because this isn't 2009? Yeah, and, and again, I think that I think it, it all comes down to both what happens in November and what story we start telling ourselves about what happened in November, right? But if this look, you know, um, uh, you know Ford signs the, the Ethics and Government Act, um, right? If, if this looks like um, a situation where sort of the, there's been a decisive repudiation of not just Trump, but sort of Trumpism, um, then one way that Biden sort of signals trustworthiness with the voters is by signing on to, to things like that. Um, and especially, you know, so, so you know, something like uh, uh, serious change to the National Emergencies Act might be tougher. Tenure protection for inspectors general might not be tough at all, right? Because, you, you know, you could easily see someone like Biden telling himself, look, you know, IGs might make a little bit of trouble for me, but it's highly unlikely I'm going to want to fire IGs just because it's really bad publicity. And, you know, only someone like Trump is, <laughs> wants to go around firing IGs. So why not sort of signal trustworthiness by, by signing a, a bill that gives them tenure protection? Yeah, um, so I, th I think that's a that's a really good point. One thing that that hasn't kind of come up yet is the subpoena power of Congress and its effectiveness and use. Um, in D.C., the courts just had like a really fun little uh, ruling that basically said that uh, subpoena power cannot be enforced by the Congress's subpoena power cannot be enforced by the courts because there's no statutory statutory basis for that. Is that is, am I well, at least, in the, that at least right? in the House, right? At least right. the House, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it said it said. Congress or either chamber, right? Was that the, was that the ruling? I, I think I the Senate has, that. Stash, has statutory authority to enforce subpoenas under some sense. bizarre. Is the, that, Senate, Dr. the Senate would. The Senate would. Yeah. So the, so statutorily, there is a there is authorization for the Senate to to enforce its subpoenas. Although I'm not sure that that would constitute the kind of cause of action that the the, the D.C. Circuit was was finding lacking the other day. Um, I mean, ultimately, this this opinion. Um, 
right? So this is, you know, this is the, the Magan case, right? So the, the, the three judge panel of the DC circuit uh, said there's no standing and then the Unbank DC circuit reversed them, sent it back to the panel. The panel said, okay, well now they're standing but there's no cause of action. Um, I suspect this will get reversed again in Bank, but none of that matters because the whole point is just to drag this out past the election. Um, uh, so that's, I mean, that's been the Republicans goal sort of from the beginning of the Trump administration is just not to be, or at least since uh, the new Congress came in in 2019, right, is not have to have to be responsive to any of these subpoenas until after it could matter for electoral purposes. Um, you know, John Roberts gave them a pass uh, uh, in, in doing that in the, in the Mazers case. And, you know, here, um, uh, three judge panel, uh, you know, two Republican appointees on the DC circuit is, is doing it again here in the McGon case. I think- Do you um, do you think do you think this is a function of sort of partisanship on the court, particularly at the Supreme Court level, or do you think this is a function of sort of general court deference to executive authority that Congress is always going to be falling behind on? Like I, those are two things that obviously could explain what's going on here. And sort of like the the counterexample is that the courts did smack the Obama administration over um, recess appointments, for instance, right? And that would indicate sort of a partisan angle to it more than an executive power angle, but. My, my general view is that the courts are just never going to help Congress as much as they're going to be willing to de defer to the president. Like, I, I just fundamentally, it seems to me that that's going to be the case and that Congress is really barking up the wrong tree if, if this is their avenue for sort of gaining this sort of power, that they just have to see this as a political situation and use political leverage instead. So I absolutely agree with that. I, I think, you know, in terms of um, what, the, what the court's motivations are, um, I think it's, I think there's a combination of uh, partisanship and uh, sort of institutional reasons going on here. So if you look at, for example, the, the Vance and the Mazars case coming down the same day, right, it turns out that um, the, the, the justices sort of are really happy to enforce judicial subpoenas and have very little interest in enforcing congressional subpoenas. Um, so there's an institutional element to it there, right? It's, it's not just that it's sort of uniformly, uh, they're, they're uniformly pro-executive, but what the courts do are is uniformly pro-courts. Um, and so, th so there's that aspect to it. Um, but they're also, you know, uh, this is sort of John Roberts as the as, as sort of the leader of the, the, the judicial uh, wing of the Republican coalition, helping out the electoral wings of the Republican coalition by making sure that, you know, none of this information about Trump becomes public before the election. So I think, I think both of those are going on. I think you're absolutely right though, that, that you know, Congress turning to the courts is just a, is a, is a, is a recipe for losing every time. And we've seen that in each of the last three administrations. Um, whether we're talking about the Myers and Bolton subpoenas in the, in the Bush two administration, the subpoena to uh, er, the contempt case against Eric Holder and the Obama administration, or now the everything in the, in the Trump administration, right? Every time Congress goes to court, even if it gets a favorable ruling at the, at the end of the day, the end of the day is far too late for, for Congress to do anything. Why didn't Congress use inherent contempt, do you think, where they just go out and they start arresting some of these people that are not compliant? Because we saw, like, this is about as egregious a case of noncompliance as you've seen in a long time. Um, why didn't they exercise some of those uh, more, uh, for lack of a better word, hardcore authorities uh, that are sort of in their toolbox uh, in order to enforce this and sort of raise the stakes and the political um, uh, 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 salience of these issues? So I think there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of fear in in um, in House leadership about sort of uh, what would happen if you try to sort of use these powers that haven't been used in in decades, um, and and there's a sort of sense of well that that kind of you know th th there's just risk aversion there, um, and that's true you know not just talking about um, uh, even something like sending out the sergeant at arms, but uh, you know I don't see why 
the, uh, they shouldn't have tried to, to zero out funding for the White House Counsel's Office, right? There's no public constituency for the White House Counsel's Office. It's not like zeroing out funding for, you know, some agency that's actually like helping people in their everyday lives. The, the, the House leadership had a sort of easy case they could have made. They look, um, in the, the, the Trump administration is stonewalling congressional oversight, not just on like one little thing like previous administrations have done, but across the board on everything. They're doing it on the basis of just ridiculous legal advice that they're getting from the White House Counsel's Office. We don't think the American people should have to pay for that ridiculous legal advice, right? I think that, you know, I think they could have won that public fight. And, you know, I was talking to staff at the time, trying to convince them to have that public fight. And we just kept hearing, I just kept hearing, you know, well, you know, the members won't go for that because they're afraid, you know, that they'll get blamed for, for shutting down the government. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I tend to side with the staffers in this specific instance because of the structure of what's in Washington, which is, it'd be one thing if you could send Trump a bill that contained that and dare him to veto, say, the defense funding, over the White House Counsel's Office. Um, if you could get it to that point, I think he'd have to eat it. Um, or at least he'd have to concede stuff prior to that where you could win some negotiated things. The problem is if you put that in a House bill right now, your fight is in conference uh, where it's senators fighting it out with you between the chambers and it sort of leaves the president out of it. And now you look like the stick in the mud who's not bending. And I think if but the you Democrats- don't have to look, I mean, but see, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's, that's one way. That's how obviously the Republicans and how the Senate would try to spin that, right? But the, the other way to spin that is, no, we passed the funding bill and the Senate is refusing to pass a bill because they, you know, insist on giving in to Trump and, and, and um, you know, they're, they're defunding. It's not the House that's defunding it. We passed the bill. They're defunding it, you know, over um, uh, just because they, they want to protect Don McGowan. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible, but I think typically what happens here, and again, partially this is because the House members are often cowards, but the Senate will pass a bill that's something of a compromise. They'll bite off some of the minority members to get the 60, and the bill will be largely similar. It'll be a little bit to the right, and it won't have this defunded House counsel. And now you're in a conference where now you're trying to win. There is a Senate bill and a House bill, and now you're kind of just up a creek because you're trying to now, – now, now it does look like you are – making a big deal over this thing that, again, has no constituency. I'm not saying it's not worth trying sometimes, but I'm saying I understand why they're reticent to have that. I, th I think the bigger issue right now in the big picture is that right now the Democrats think they're going to win the presidency. And they don't want to do anything right now between now and November that could utterly change the structure of the election. And therefore, this is a great time for the Trump administration to try and chew off stuff that they're not going to see a huge reaction from the House Democrats um, who are just, you know, terrified that something could backfire. Maybe quite rightly so, because they see this as like you get 150 days left or whatever of this. And then it, then we'll be in charge. And if we want to do reform after, you know, then we'll do it. You know, it's no different than, you know, the Republicans in the winter of 60-61. They don't want to negotiate because inauguration first, adjustments later, right? And I kind of see that as the game right now. If the Democrats were in danger of losing the election. And I, you know, I, I think that the House uh, in many ways, you know, was, was fairly active um, in that time. I mean, you know, they, they, they've been trying to get Trump's tax returns since, since basically the, you know, a couple months into the new Congress. They've been trying to get a lot of information out of this administration. They haven't, you know, I think they had too much confidence in the judiciary. Um, but, you know, some of these things, they don't really have, uh, you know, th their two options basically are power of the purse or going to court. And, you, you know, go to court, you're, it's going to take forever. And 
all of that, of course, assumes that Trump would obey a, a final court order, which, um, you know, hasn't really been an issue because he has, there haven't been any final court orders that have gone against him on, on issues that are really sort of central to oversight. So yeah. let's, let's do a real quick hypothetical. Let's pretend that Democrats won the Senate too in 2018. And all of a sudden we're looking at unified Congress, right? Kind of, you got like 50, 50, you got 51 senators, right? Or something along those lines. Do you, what kind of things do you believe that they might have pushed in that instance where you have a kind of lined up uh, institution? Now you still have a 60 vote threshold in the Senate to get any of these power of the purse stuff um, over the line. Um, pending, but you can kind of tack some of the stuff onto bigger spending deals. Do you think they pushed anything in particular? Do, uh, do you think that they, there's more progress on this or do you still see the kind of stalemate where Republicans are just really entrenched and not letting any of it reach the president? Well, it's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I don't know. Um, I, I think, you know, it, I could imagine, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird to imagine. You could almost imagine the Democrats in, in, a, in that situation doing away with the legislative filibuster simply to force Trump to veto things. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, yes. I, 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 that scenario is very hard for me to tease out in my head because one thing that would have happened is the tap would have been turned off on the conservative judges. Mm -hmm. um, and once that tap is turned off, what are the Republicans really getting out of Trump that they really want? And who knows? Are there Republicans who are like, I give up, this isn't worth it anymore. And now you impeach him and all of a sudden you get, I mean, there's all sorts of snowball effects you might have there. Um, or Trump might decide, okay, now I want to get something out of these nominations. <laughs> now it's infrastructure like, week. Right. Now, now, now I want to actually bargain. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to be like Trump, the partisan sort of puppet to the GOP. I want to be Trump, the compromise. I, I don't know what that scenario brings. Um, and maybe it just makes Trump less emboldened to fight. Uh, because he doesn't feel like he's going to have people's back and, and the investigations are not going to be sort of these battling interchamber investigations over various nonsense in Ukraine. It's going to be a unified investigation, maybe even a bicameral investigation into things. And you get a very different sort of play on that. Um, but I yeah, know. I mean, I, th I, think, I think you're absolutely right that, that absent, absent you know, federal judges getting confirmed, it's a lot easier to imagine real breaks in the, you know, from Trump in the, among, among Republicans in the Senate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that it is, it is funny because you, you said it, uh, Josh, and I will credit you with it, but it didn't immediately cross my mind when that question was asked, like, wow, is this a situation where someone might kill the legislative filibuster in a divided government scenario? And uh, I think it might be. Um, you know, if you want, again, if you want to do this stuff through the appropriations process, through the power of the purse in divided government, you probably need a convenient way to get stuff through the Senate so that you can shove it on the president's desk and, and put him to a decision uh, in these omnibus bills. I mean, the leaders have been, uh, they were using omnibus bills to make Trump eat stuff as far back as the 18 um, omnibus, right? Mm -hmm. that, that horrible signing statement he had where he's like so depressed that he says, well, there's some good stuff in here for the military and there's a lot of junk too, but I guess I got to sign it. It was like, you know, well, here's the power of an omnibus bill in a nutshell. And if you want to zero out the White House counsel, even most of the EOP, um, it's going to be hard for him to veto uh, defense funding over that kind of stuff. And I, I suspect that that's the kind of stuff in a true traditional divided government scenario where one party could get stuff out of Congress you'd have. So we'll be tempting to get rid of the legislative filibuster. We should probably talk about the legislative filibuster.
Yeah, I think that's the most likely scenario, to be honest, right? If you wanted Democrats to nuke the legislative filibuster, put Trump on the other side of that issue, right? Um, that's the one thing that they can actually unify behind. Now, we were talking about like some different scenarios under which the legislative filibuster could go um, in the 116th, pending Democrats. This is pending, they get unified control, right? So, sorry, whatever, whatever's after this one, right? So, um, you're looking at that. Um, what are some of the things, what are the dynamics that you think are going to either one, instigate reform or prevent it? I think, I mean, I, I tend to think we're, we're pretty likely to see the legislative filibuster get nuked in that, in that scenario. Um, you know, I, I know that there are sort of uh, people sort of making noises about not, you know, Democrats making noises about not wanting to do that at this point. Um, but I think, uh, I, I think they will get, they will wind up either getting fairly significant policy concessions from Republicans, which strikes me as unlikely, or they will wind up getting to a point fairly quickly where they come to decide that, the, that, that, that it's worth it to, to nuke the, the legislative filibuster, just like they came to decide that in 2013 after sort of months of, of various Democrats making noises saying, oh no, we have to keep the, the filibuster for, for appointments. It's, it's so important, blah, 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 at some point. Uh, uh, obstruction reaches a point where where you just you put that aside and and you nuke it. I think you know w one thing I've I've said sort of uh, from the beginning is that the, the the biggest sign of Trump's weakness with his own party uh, is that Republicans didn't nuke the filibuster in the 115th, right? That they had control of the House, they had the presidency, and they had a majority, but not a not a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. And they didn't, uh, they didn't nuke the filibuster. And that's because Republicans in, the, in Congress didn't want to pass the things Trump wanted passed. And the filibuster was an easy excuse they could point to for not passing wall funding and all kinds of other yeah. things. I have a question I, about that. So, I mean, that's a really good point. Now, one of the, there, there are kind of two angles of this. Either one, Trump is a terribly ineffective leader that Republicans don't want to follow. And there's certainly truth to that. Um, on the other side of that, how much of this is a function of Senate Republicans being divided? In other words, they can't agree amongst themselves about what they would want to nuke the filibuster over. Um, do you see one playing as, as being more uh, prominent than the other? I mean, the, the two are deeply related, right? In the sense that, that one sort of function that a strong party leader serves is to try to, to uh, paper over uh, intra-party divisions and to try to uh, bring together a divided party, right? So. Um, you know, one thing that an effective president of your own party would do is uh, sort of try to craft compromises that you could sort of unify your caucus behind. Um, and, and there was, and Trump has just no ability to do that with his caucus. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't think that there was, e I'm not even sure there was a majority of the Republican caucus that really cared, you know, that really wanted to fund a, a border wall. Yeah, um, I mean, that, to me, that falls into the repeal Obamacare crack where you get rid of, or you don't get rid of the filibuster, but use reconciliation instructions to achieve the same thing. And then all of a sudden you can't find a simple majority for it. Right. Um, and so if anything, you know, they saved themselves having to enact Trump's agenda, but they also saved the president maybe from the embarrassment of his own agenda failing in his own party's Congress, um, which they couldn't save obviously on health care. Um, when, when they didn't have the votes, but not having the vote for the border wall would have been absolutely devastating uh, if it came to the Senate floor. And so they don't want the border wall. Trump certainly doesn't want a failed vote on the border wall, for God's sakes, um, where they can't blame the Democrats. Uh, so not killing the filibuster gives them the best of all worlds. They don't bring it up by agenda setting, but if they have to bring it up, they know it's going to be blocked anyway. Someone had, someone had the Henry Cabot Lodge quote on Twitter this week about how 
the, the real problem with the filibuster is it takes away responsibility from the majority party. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the argument I'm most receptive to, because I will be a mild defender of the filibuster at times. Um, I do think it serves some purposes, but it absolutely allows the majority to hide behind not taking responsibility for things they are trying or saying they're trying to do as a majority. Uh, and it allows them to really play both sides uh, of their mouths and those sorts of things. And so that would be one refreshing um, thing that would happen if the force was gone. It's like, well, just do it if you're going to do it. Um, and otherwise admit that you don't have the votes or you don't have the wherewithal to go through with something. Yeah. And I think, and I think to, to bring it back, back to the future, as it were, um, th- there's enough that the, that the Democrats do, in fact, uh, want to accomplish, uh, such that if they have majorities in both chambers and the presidency, um, they're going to be sort of uh, things that they have, that they can, they can unify their caucus behind um, and that they really uh, sort of feel strongly enough about. Um, whether, you know, I, I think that, I think the, the, if you're, if you're uh, a Senator who's pushing to, to nuke the legislative filibuster, I think that the sort of first thing you bring up is the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act extension, right? Yeah. And you, and you, you dare the, you know, you dare the Republicans to, to oppose it. They probably will. Uh, and then you, 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 I think you can easily unify your caucus behind that. Yeah. I think the, the main danger, uh, of the public debate for the Democrats, and certainly how the Republicans will try to attack this, is that whatever instant thing you try to nuke the filibuster over, the Republicans will try to sell it as well. This opens the door to every single thing else. So this isn't really about voting rights. Uh, This is really about climate change legislation, right? This isn't really about voting rights. This is about, uh, this is about the Green New Deal, right? And if the Republicans didn't successfully sell that, that's going to put the moderate Democrats, Manchin, you know, maybe Angus King, other people who win seats in Arizona or Georgia or wherever, sort of in a little bit of a bind, because if the, if the, if sort of the terms of debate can be set that we are talking about, not the instant issue, uh, voting rights, which I think is an excellent issue to sort of do this over. I think the minimum wage would be another excellent issue to do this over for Democrats. Uh, but if we're talking about everything, I think it becomes more complicated. And I mean, the Democrats flip side are, of that is that those are precisely the Democrats who become much more powerful in a Senate without a filibuster, right? So if you're, if you're a 51, you know, if, 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 if you just have to get to 51, um, all of a sudden Joe Manchin and, and Mark Kelly and, uh, you know, whoever the, the um, sort of people right, clustered right around the median are uh, suddenly become the gatekeepers to legislation in a way that they're not in a 60 vote Senate. So the trade-off for them is, yeah, there's a, the, you know, um, to the extent that Republicans can sort of sell this publicly as being about the Green New Deal, then that really puts Manchin on the defensive. But Manchin can, first of all, I don't think Manchin's going to win his next election. He knows that. Um, but you know, to the extent that he doesn't yet know that, um, he can sort of sell this to his voters as, no, no, this is now, this now allows me to set uh, yep. uh, environmental policy going forward. Yeah. It kind of depends on how large the 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 majority is too, right? If you have 54 people, then that's like a lot different than being 52. But one of the other things that I would, that I think is interesting here is that a lot of people say like, it's going to be the issue that kind of unifies the caucus. And that's absolutely going to be true. But many people assume it's going to be like a new political objective that's going to be doing that. Um, And whenever you're starting to push this new policy, new programs, or even like instituting old stuff, you're kind of taking a political hit in a way that um, you wouldn't if it was a different vehicle. So for example, like, let's assume like the 
there's an appropriations bill that has to pass, like it must pass, or maybe there's a um, COVID package that absolutely has to get across the line. That seems to me like it's an easier thing to rally the troops behind because there's not this kind of political weight that comes with it. Like, yes, you're risking the agenda power in the, in the future, but you're not risking the sort of like political uh, fallout that you might be taking at that immediate vote. And it seems like if you're going to uh, nuke the filibuster and change the way that the Senate operates, doing so on an issue that also has massive political ramifications sort of exponentially makes that decision harder. Um, do you guys think that it's going to be like an, because I, I personally think it's going to be an appropriations bill. Right? It's just going to be like, all right, if you want to nuke it, we need to get this COVID bill across the line. Like, here we go. Like this, this take it or leave it. We're not doing like the tiny thing that you guys yeah. wanted to do. Um, here's a big bill. And plus the other, the other side of these appropriations things is they're not a zero sum as many of these other political issues. Like the Voting Rights Act doesn't have that kind of dynamic. But like, if you're talking about climate change, like you know, getting Joe Manchin on board means like losing Ed Markey, right? Or uh, Elizabeth Warren. And there's kind of like a zero sum balancing act that you have to do. Whereas on appropriations bill, you can just kind of plus things up. It's like, oh, you don't like it? What can we give you? Well, how about another bridge in West Virginia? That sounds great too. All right. Let's but go that's ahead. why, and that's in some sense why it's less likely to be, to be an appropriations bill, because that's also how you get some, some Republicans on board. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's just, it, it, there's less likely to be that kind of showdown on an appropriations bill. See, I think there's different categories of legislation. We talk about the legislative filibuster and I could see sort of this, a lot of people see as kabuki theater, this piecemeal thing, kind of the way it went with the judges in 13 and then in 17, uh, where they do it in some way where they're claiming it's not really about everything. And I mean, really, because there's some stuff that is this total, appropriations bills are different than sort of typical authorizing legislation, which are different than statehood bills, right? Um, and if the boogeyman here is that the Democrats want to nuke the filibuster so that they can bring 10 new states into the union, right? That does sound a little scary, right? Or that that could happen. The other one someone brought up that's scary is like, well, is this going to apply to like jurisdiction stripping bills, right? Or is a simple majority in Congress now going to be able to turn off what the courts are considering? Um, and those kind of things seem different to me than annual appropriations bills. Um, and in some sense, like, I think the filibuster probably is most important in places where you're making like permanent or long-term unreversible decisions. And so like, if I had my druthers, I'd probably leave the filibuster in on judicial nominations. That seems like a spot where, well, maybe instant majorities shouldn't have this big a say. Um, or statehood bills, right? Maybe instant majorities really shouldn't be doing things like rearranging um, the powers like that. Whereas on things like annual appropriations bills, it seems totally, totally natural to me to be rid of the filibuster, right? It's an annual appropriations bill, right? And obviously there's problems with, you know, authorizations on appropriations. You can put the state bill into an appropriations bill, right? But you could also have rules in the Senate about that too. So things like how to divide money up for a year, like the filibuster should just be gone, right? Things like should someone have a seat on the Supreme Court for the rest of their life? That's one where I'm much more sort of conservative about the filibuster, which of course is now gone on that topic. So it's not an issue, but I don't see all of this as, you know, legislative filibuster is all the same for all types of legislation. I mean, I, so I might, uh, I, I think I'm more skeptical of the filibuster across the board than you are, but I, I find it hard to imagine that kind of sort of detailed filibuster code yeah. finding right. its way into, into either Senate rules or, or. I don't know, Jermaine uh, precedents are real weird, man. Well, but we kind of, <laughs> we, we sort of already have it, right? Because in, in the way we've set up the Senate right now, anything that has to do with budget decisions essentially isn't filibusterable if you can fit it into these ridiculous reconciliation rules. So in some sense, we already have layered the scaffolding of like what the filibuster is and isn't on top of the Senate. Now, I'm not saying that works well. Well, except, and, but I mean, they, except, they except that the, I mean, the bird rule, 
is pretty constraining, right? I mean, the reason that the Affordable Care Act doesn't, you know, still exists in recognizable form is because of the bird rule, right? I, I think if the Republicans can craft any kind of reform they want in 2017, then they can get to 51 votes in the Senate, right? The reason that, that they narrowly can't repeal the, the ACA in 2017 is because the, the bill to do it had to, had to be consistent with, the, with, with reconciliation. Uh, had to be a reconciliation bill, therefore consistent with the bird rule. Reconciliation is not nearly as, you know, it gets, it gets used for, for things of, uh, that, are, that are consequential, no doubt, but it's, it's, it's a lot more constraining than just sort of things that have to do with the budget. Uh, sure, and, you know. sure. But I mean, I, I, the, my point is that, I mean, so this is another way that you could get rid of the filibuster without getting rid of it. We could just tear the bird rule to shreds. Um, and if the Democrats came in and one of the first things they wanted to do was reduce the Medicare eligibility age to zero, right? Like you can probably do that under reconciliation now. Um, you can definitely do it if you shred the bird rule. And like, this would be sort of like, you know, a Mo Molly Reynolds style uh, mm -hmm. approach to this where you don't get rid of the filibuster. You just keep carving out exception after exception and widening that chasm to drive trucks through, which leaves it in place, you know, in some real sense on a lot of issues, but then starts to cut it out on issues you like just by defining them as sort of within the scope of reconciliation. I mean, I do think that- I just don't think that's a stable equilibrium, right? Once you, I mean, almost by definition, sort of something that's coming to a vote that has majority, like that's sort of already gotten through all the other hurdles that you know is gonna pass the house, you know is gonna get signed by the president, you know has the support of at least 51 senators. Um, and you've also reached the point where uh, by majority vote, you're just creating, you know, on a weekly basis, new exceptions to, to the filibuster, then uh, at, the, at that point, it's hard to imagine any bill that you wouldn't do it for. Yeah. Right? But under that, under that theory, though, you have to go back and explain the failure to repeal Obamacare, because one thing they could have done is just nuke the bird rule. Right. And, and, and if that's the case, then, then I, I'm open to an argument that they didn't really want to repeal Obamacare. Right. And then the, the moderates weren't going to nuke the bird rule. And that was going to be where they failed to get the 50 rather than on the substantive legislation. And I, and then that's totally a reasonable position, but um, it is a little stickier than just the majority controls the Senate. Um, they do have to worry about sort of public opinion and individual senators reelections and positioning the stuff and tough votes they do or don't want to take. Um, but I mean, I take your point. I don't think, I think that's right. And, and I think the first time you do it and the first, maybe the first couple times you do it, it's, it's highly salient, right? And so you do it for things that are really popular. The thing is, once you start doing that on a sort of, you know, once you start carving up the, the kinds of legislation that you're willing to do that for into these sort of big chunks and saying, well, that's not subject to, to the bird rule or, you know, that, um, uh, th that's not subject to the filibuster. Uh, and, and this isn't subject to the filibuster, and that isn't. At, at some point, it just becomes like what, just another procedural vote in the in the series of votes you take to pass anything. This is one of the things that makes this conversation so backwards, because like there are definitely parts of the, the parts of the government that require forbearance, right? They require like cooperation or at least some sort of communication between the parties that are going to give legitimacy to that thing. So, for example, like Supreme Court justices, you want like bipartisan support on Supreme Court justices. You want bipartisan support, hopefully on like some of your um, nominees to the executive branch that they're going to fulfill the laws as they are written. Hopefully, you know, this is all in theory still. Um, but, you know, legislation is not one of those places where I really see like, oh, we have to communicate between the two parties. Like, I don't see it. I, I'm kind of with, with, with Josh on this one where it's like, I don't see it as like, oh, well, we're going to save the filibuster for like regular regulatory issues. Right. And then, you know, you have to reach a 60 vote threshold on climate change legislation, but like appropriations and other spending packages can be done through a straight majority on legislation. You can kind of argue that, oh, we have to have some sort of bipartisan compromise between this. We already got this like 
crazy requirement that like senators and house members have to agree on stuff like adding this like super majority requirement on legislation in particular doesn't seem like a place where like that kind of forbearance that you need between the separation of branches is really required in order for a functioning government argument it's, it's it's makes it harder worse in many respects I think that's, I mean, another way to, 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 to put that would just be to say that the requirements of bicameralism and presentment are already functional supermajority requirements. And yep. so then to layer on top of that an actual supermajority requirement in one of the institutions uh, uh, that already has to agree with two other institutions to, to get anything passed into law is, you know, you're, you're, just, uh, you're just multiplying supermajority requirements in a, in a way that at some point becomes um, uh, just too too limiting, right? Too I, I should say that at a sort of positivist level, at a functional level, I'm excited for the Phobos to go because I'm very excited for both parties to have to uh, put the money where their mouth is on a lot of these issues, especially when they have unified governments. Like, I am really excited to see that if the Democrats do nuke the filibuster, then what they actually put on the agenda in a unified government. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of stuff that, and this is very much how I feel sometimes about the repeal of like Roe versus Wade or something, or overturning Casey, right? Well, now we get to see what state legislatures really want to do now that they have free reign to do it. And this is different than that, but it's similar in that, well, what's a unified democratic government going to do if they can do things by majority vote? Both what can they achieve among their moderates and generally what does the party think is on the agenda? Because uh, there's all sorts of stuff that talks well now when you have no chance of doing it, but when it's time to set it down and do it, um, are you going to do things that, um, you know, that, that might make the public nervous or might hurt your election chances that have been party priorities, but really look a lot better when you can't actually achieve them. And uh, so the, the order of the agenda, once you assume the filibuster gone, fascinates me. And, uh, and I think it would be healthy for American politics for those things to make, you know, they would make elections mean more too, right? Yeah. If it's true, the Democrats might try to put a federal handgun ban in. I mean, I know that's probably unlikely on the substance and probably unlikely in the constitutionality, but it's not out of the realm of possibility uh, once the filibuster is gone that you might have the votes for something like that. Um, and whether parties want to approach those things uh, is much more interesting when you know the minority can't stop it. Yeah, it's like you have a majority that can pass stuff in the Senate. Now all of a sudden the parties may actually depolarize some of their stances a little bit to make it more realistic. So I, I think one of the, the worst myths out there um, about the, uh, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act was that you know, they only missed it by one vote. It was only John McCain. And like, honestly, I really think John McCain was covering for like six, seven, maybe eight Republicans who were like, yeah, we're not cool with like the whole like getting rid of the Medicaid thing. That's like, no, no, we're not into that so much. Yeah, I think there are a lot more senators who are not really into that. I mean, I really don't, I really don't buy the idea that it was just McCain who was doing it. I think he was the one who was brave enough to do it and say like, well, yeah, and, I'd buy and Murkowski and Collins, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Don't forget yeah, Murkowski yeah, right. and Collins. Right. Right. I mean, McCain, like, McCain in a sort of fairly typical McCain move sort of stole the spotlight by waiting till the very end and then doing the dramatic hand gesture and all that. But you know, right. let's, let's not forget, he wasn't the only Republican who, who voted yeah. against it. I, yeah. I do think that getting rid of the filibuster, one thing the Senate I think also enjoys about the filibuster is that it's a nice cover story for the underlying malapportionment in the Senate. And that once you have a majority rules chamber like the Senate that is not even designed in any way to sort of reflect public opinion um, or even try to reflect public opinion, but just an amalgamation of sort of states as a confederation, I think that's going to become much more in the spotlight uh, that the Senate itself is inherently um, not a majoritarian institution. And it's not because of the filibuster. It's because of the way it's composed. And it's going to be front and center when uh, you get stuff that a majority is trying to pass and it's not getting the votes there, not because a the majority of Americans are clear for it, not because a majority of 
represented states aren't for it, but just because there's a small number of small states that don't want it, I think it's going to come right to the forefront. And I don't think that's good for the Senate, but it may be good for <laughs> states to be able to see that uh, as a public, that what's really going on in the Senate is not just filibuster, not just supermajority votes, but fundamental malapportionment. Well, I do, I do think you see that in the sort of public discourse around the filibuster where people, you know, especially on the left point out, you know, hey, um, it's it, it, like the, the people sort of holding up this bill from passing represent this, you know, infinitesimally small percentage of the American population because, uh, you know, the, the right, the 40 senators represent like 12% of the population. Exactly. So you see, you see that sort of stacked on top of each other, right? The combination of the filibuster and the, and the malapportionment of the Senate. Yeah. There's also the issue of whether a majoritarian Senate loses power relative to the house within Congress, um, which is another thing that senators may be concerned about right now. The filibuster means, all the ultimate compromise are made in the Senate. And we have this recurring cycle of these partisan bills being passed in the House, thrown in the garbage can in the Senate, Senate crimes a compromise, and House finds a way to eat it. Uh, and majoritarian Senate won't be uh, so able to hide behind that. Uh, and their position, the House can start passing bills and say, no, you eat it. Um, and I still think the Senate will have a bit more leverage because it's likely to be more closely divided uh, than the House will be. The House might be able to assemble a coalition uh, under the majority party just because of the power of the leaders. But it, this really could be a situation where you might see the House um, get more of its way on more issues, uh, which I also think would be a refreshing change in Congress um, yeah. and sort of a side effect no one's talking about here. I think one of the things that becomes interesting is it depends on how many people, how many, how large the majorities are in that particular Congress for each chamber, right? So the, in 2017, when they were passing that tax bill, like the House comes out, it's like, oh, well, we got a budget and we're going to save $200 billion with this budget. And the Senate's like, negative uh, 1.5 trillion. <laughs> which one, which one? They're like, they were so far apart. The House is like, okay, negative 1.5 trillion. It's like, okay, well, we're going to do this other thing. The House came up with the bill. Senate's like, no, we're going to pass this thing. Um, it was a really interesting thing, but you could see that like totally flip the script of some way. There's like 57 senators from one and the majority. Um, and then the house is like 222 or something like that. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden no, I mean, like, I, completely flips it. But in a pure interchamber rivalry, you know, model, you want to have the smaller majority. Um, if it's a fight between house Democrats and Senate Democrats, you want a smaller majority such that they have to eat your bill. Yep. Um, and, and, and like, that's not a position like in my lifetime, I can remember the house being in, right? <laughs> they're going <laughs> to drive, drive the, drive the, drive the go-kart on this one. And, uh, I think it's going to be wonderful to watch. And, and I hope the house is able to take advantage of that. Um, because I, every sort of negotiation I ever sort of like took part in on the sidelines in Congress, the Senate was always, always, always sort of institutionally structured to have more leverage. Doesn't mean they always won. Um, but they always started with more leverage. And it's just, a you know, it's a joke because the Senate sometimes will pass things and go home, right? That old trick. <laughs> and then the House will like threaten to pass things and go home. And the Senate will be like, nah, you're bluffing. And you're like, all right. <laughs> and right, the House we'll always stay. comes back. We'll stay. Yeah, the House comes back. They don't even leave, right? Yeah. Well, you know, Ryan or Horror, like, we're going home. And then they don't even get on the plane. So they just stick <laughs> like, around and wait for the Senate to say, no, you stay. Go, like, go back, go back, get back in there. <laughs> you're not done. You're not done. So um, as we come to a close, Josh, do you have any like, any lasting insights about what, what's going to happen in the election or what's going to happen with oh, Congress uh, now that we're, I know, now that we're moving into a uh, uh, silly season, so to speak. What's the old Yogi Berra line? Never make predictions, especially about the future. That's um, right. Yeah, no, I, I definitely do not want to offer any predictions about the election. <laughs> <laughs> I do, you know, I, I, 
what I think, you know, as I said, the, the thing I'll, I'll, I'll be really interested in is to see, you know, if, the, if Democrats uh, do well in the election, if they take the presidency, if they take the Senate, um, I really think there's going to be this sort of interesting November and December period where the sort of, where a lot of different people are going to be furiously engaged in trying to construct the meaning of that election, right? Um, try to sort of say what it is, right? Is it, is it just a normal election where the, the incumbent gets voted out or is this a sort of large scale repudiation? And a lot of what happens over the course of the 117th Congress is going to be, is gonna have the groundwork laid for it in, in that period before the 117th even starts uh, with this question of like, is this, uh, you know, is this a post-Watergate moment or is this just another new Congress like we're used to seeing? I was thinking about a similar point is that, uh, you know, I'm expecting, you know, what most people are expecting, you know, Biden will win the presidency and the, the Democrats will probably take the Senate, but you know, it could be close, other things could happen. I'm very interested in what's going to happen in Congress in the lame duck period. Uh, often we get a flurry of lawmaking in the lame duck period. Um, even in 2018, we got both the Farm Bill and the First Steps Criminal Justice Reform Act. Uh, as a matter of thing, it looked like we were going to get another CR until the president blew it up with the shutdown. Um, I have really no idea how a President Trump post-electoral defeat that everybody recognizes, that the Republicans recognize Biden's being president, how he behaves. Um, and I can see it going both ways. I can see him really just becoming sort of a surprisingly sort of like fine in defeat and now move on and congratulations, Joe, good luck. And I can see it going the exact opposite way where he is just on a war path to burn down the Republican party and everything he can in Washington on the way out. Um, and uh, I don't expect sort of, even if we have definitive election results, uh, the first week in November that everyone sort of agrees upon and the Biden won, that you're going to have sort of um, any idea what's going to happen in the intervening time period, either legislatively or in uh, sort of separation of powers. And, you know, all sorts of things still remain, uh, especially if Trump is highly repudiated about his use of the pardon power uh, and other sort of uh, constitutional powers that he will still retain until January 20th. I mean, I, I think there's a third possibility there, which is that he just sort of uh, uh, retreats to the to the East Wing and tweets furiously. And I think like the one right, the pardon power is the one. Maybe thing that's that you the most likely him, one. Yeah, is the one thing that you could like really see him exercising. But like, I can imagine like you know um, a whole bunch of judgeships you know open up and and Trump doesn't care. He doesn't bother to nominate because you know what, what does he care? It's it's not you know it's not his ball game anymore. Um, and he's not particularly invested in, in policy. Yeah. He's not invested in anything outside himself. So I, can, the, I think the pardon stuff is interesting, right? Does he pardon everyone he's ever met, himself included? Uh, but beyond that, I, I, I think there's a decent chance if he's repudiated, he just kind of says, yeah. well, screw it. I'm not going to do anything. Sulks yeah. away like the sad carnival barker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Um, I'm kind of thinking more immediately. Uh, we The last month or two, we've kind of watched Congress sort of ease back into a normal sort of election year routine where, you know, they're not really negotiating a whole lot. They're passing, passing messaging bills for the most part. And they're largely kind of resigned to the fact that we're not going to be doing a whole lot of legislation. Instead, we're just kind of waiting for November to arrive. Um, and that would normally be sort of fine if there wasn't a pandemic going on and a lot of the issues that uh, Congress has to address and, and, and uh, pay attention to. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see if there's actually movement of legislation in September, especially as like the continuing resolution comes up. Yeah, 
guys, they uh, better be moving on it. one bill. <laughs> right, right. That's got to come up. But, you know, the other question is, like, do you put unemployment benefits on that? Are there yeah. going to be a push to put, like, state and local bailout on there? Is there going to be, like, is there going to be another pressure point in which all of these COVID negotiations kind of reemerge? Right. I mean, yeah. why, would, why would the House not put those on there? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're popular. They're, they're, like, right. Yeah. They're popular. But I, again, I, I agree. And the House should fight for those things. The reason I think they might not is that they are, again, extremely risk averse about losing this election. And if at the last week in September, Biden still has what looks like a 10 point lead five weeks out, they are not interested in a shutdown. And that takes away their leverage because the Republicans will know it. Um, doesn't mean they shouldn't fight. Doesn't mean they couldn't win a shutdown. It means they're going to be really hesitant to change the structure of the election, uh, even if in most cases, changing that structure to shut down gains for them. Um, they'll be very wary of the situations where it backfires and all of a sudden they're staring down the bar barrel of a Trump presidency. So, so let me propose a, 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 an alternative. So the House passes two CRs, one a, a, a long-term CR that has all this COVID-related stuff tied to it, and the other is a two-month CR. And they say, this is, you know, you, you pick which one you want. Right? You can't put the house for shutting things down because we passed a clean CR that'll get us past the election. Um, yep. uh, or you can take the longer term option um, that, that, that comes with. Yeah. And then literally go home, like do that and go yeah. home and really try to actually pull a house goes home strategy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we did our job. Yeah. And yeah. And again, there's also like, you know, the other, the other problem with this that sometimes you see, and I, and it, it just eats at me is that sometimes even the Democrats would rather have an issue than a policy. Um, and, you know, you, you see this sometimes with the way Schumer behaves in the Senate where he won't give into a compromise because he'd rather have an issue. And, and it's totally fine to want an issue, but the Democrats, you know, from just a brass tax politics here might want an issue in November and might prefer that to COVID. But that's not the way they've been, that's not the way they've been playing COVID, right? Ah, I mean, recently, <laughs> recently, yeah. I mean, like that, that 300, that 500 billion thing that, that, that uh, McConnell's floating or whatever, Schumann's like, it's emaciated. It's like a little thing that's bad. It's not good. And like Pelosi, they're, they're budging, but they're not budging that much, right? They're not going down to like 1.5 trillion or 1.75 trillion. Like there, there's room for them to negotiate. I think the big question becomes, is the White House still sticking firm on this like, no state bailout aid and a couple other priorities that mm -hmm. Democrats have. I could easily see them being like, well, mm -hmm. do what Josh says, like here are two bills that you have. And then just being fine with sort of like when Republicans accept a two month CR into December past the election um, and just saying, we'll take the issue yeah. sort of thing. Um, it's it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if nothing happens either. <laughs> so that's, that's an alternative that. Um, I nothing meaning a shutdown for yeah, all of October. Yeah, no shutdowns, right. Nothing. I, as can't, in like, I can't see a shutdown. Very boring. It's going to be very, yeah, very boring I, I September. See, I, I mean, see. I, I can't see a shutdown. And I, I also can't see the Democrats just eating a clean CR either. So I, I would bet on a CR with some stuff in it that is goodies to both sides isn't even close to what the Democrats want, um, but that they ultimately end up eating because they are nervous about rocking the boat too much. And that's not, not a great substantive result for them, but I think any result that uh, – that helps some constituents without endangering the election is probably their motivation right now. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I uh, want to thank everybody for joining. Josh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was a great time. time. All right. We hope everybody stays safe and we will talk to you later.